My name is Julian Willard. And I'm Jim Mack, and this is Pineal Express, where trains of thought intersect. In the two years since Pineal Express has been running, we, its operators, have sought to raise awareness about the major problems facing our species. Such problems include climate change, the risk of technological dystopia, and the latest rise of the authoritarian far-right worldwide. These problems have been worsened by the United States, but the United States also has the potential to ameliorate them, provided that its government is functional enough to do so. For that reason, among others, it is important that the United States government not fall into chronic stagnation, dysfunction, or in the extreme case, collapse or despotism. Presently, there are numerous structural weaknesses which threaten the efficacy and long-term health of the United States government. Among these weaknesses is the Electoral College, which has contradicted the popular vote in the election of two out of the last three presidents in their first terms. For demographic reasons and electoral vote apportionments over time, that kind of incongruity between the Electoral College and popular vote may become more frequent, not less. Another structural weakness is legislative district gerrymandering on the state and federal level. Now aided by precise, computer-driven optimization of legislative maps for partisan advantage, thereby making control of some legislative districts effectively voter-proof. Yet another structural weakness is the state's leeway to enact laws which suppress voter turnout, chiefly among minorities, the poor, and the young. Still another weakness includes the campaign finance system, which allows for a kind of legalized corruption in government, with candidates at every stage of the electoral process disproportionately influenced by, if not outright dependent upon, those entities which bankroll them most. There is also the inherently unrepresentative nature of the U.S. Senate, where right now the 40 million people living in California get two senators, whereas the 40 million people living in the least populated states get a combined total of 44 senators. The scale of this problem may grow even more severe with demographic change over time. Lastly, there is the Supreme Court, which is theoretically vulnerable to a cadre of ideologues capitalizing on their lifetime tenure to spend decades setting aside legal precedent in favor of enacting a partisan judicial agenda. One wonders precisely how close we are to that now. These structural weaknesses threaten the functionality and stability of the United States government because they make the government less representative of and less responsive to the general public. Furthermore, they raise the chances that an oligarchic minority can use the government to stymie anti-corruption reforms or to consolidate undue power. It is worth mentioning that elected Republicans benefit disproportionately from each of these structural weaknesses and therefore they have an incentive to maintain the status quo insofar as they can. Hence, there is great challenge in pursuing a reform agenda. Joining us today to talk about the pressing need to solve these fundamental problems of representation in the U.S. government is Harvard Law professor Lawrence Lessig. Professor Lessig has argued that the United States has become ungovernable and that new, unprecedented efforts to reform the system are necessary. These efforts could include specific reform-minded election strategies or an Article 5 convention to propose constitutional amendments. For example, Wolfpack, an organization that Lessig has supported, aims to reform the campaign finance system using this Article 5 convention approach. 
Professor Lessig details his strategies for fixing our broken government on his podcast, Another Way. We do recommend listening to Another Way in tandem with this episode of Pineal Express. So with all that said, and without further delay, welcome Larry Lessig to Pineal Express. I appreciate that in your podcast, Another Way, you explore ways to fix the structural problems that make the United States government unrepresentative of its public. Before we get into some potential solutions to those problems, I'd like to ask about the stakes. What do you fear will happen to the United States without structural reforms that make the government more small d democratic? Well, I think the better way to frame what it needs to become is small r representative. And the reason for that is the unrepresentative democracy that we've evolved gives special interests a real capacity to uh, block the opportunity of government to make any real progress or change. And so it's rendered the United States effectively ungovernable as we've come to this extraordinary polarized uh, public and uh, representative body that just can't make decisions, largely because we've allowed these institutions to become so unequal that a tiny fraction can block the opportunity for progress. It becomes what Francis Fukuyama calls a vetoocracy or a vetocracy. And, uh, and that won't change until we find a way to make these fundamental structural reforms. So this vetoocracy, I mean, as this plays out, as this unrepresentative stagnation in government continues, what are the consequences? Well, I think the biggest consequence is that the government can't act. It can't make decisions. So whether that's to address climate change or sensible health care policy or to begin to have a plan for how to think about AI or to deal with antitrust in a digital age, these are all the sorts of things that sensible, you know, modern governments need the capacity to do. And we just don't have that capacity anymore. So, you know, I think in the early part of the 19th century, you could easily have said it's not a terrible thing if we don't have a federal government that can act, um, you know, because most of the actions at the state level and we don't really need the federal government to step in much. But I don't think anybody can really believe that today in the context of the global externalities that um, that we see, we can imagine having a federal government that just can't act. And that's what we've got right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're talking about political dysfunction. And one thing I've heard you argue is that the root, one of the roots of political dysfunction is the vast majority of people don't think there is anything that can be done to fix it. So what do you think accounts for this collective passivity and cynicism? Well, I think there are two things. Uh, one, most people don't actually have a practical sense of what could be done. Let many of them look at like the Supreme Court's interventions and believe the Supreme Court has made it impossible for any changes to be made without amending the Constitution. And the other is that I think that people have become so cynical about politicians that they believe that everything the politicians have done, they've actually done to benefit themselves. So you put these together and um, there's no reason to believe the politicians when the politicians talk about reform. And even if they did talk about reform that they were genuine about, it's it's hard to imagine that anything could be made effective. So I think that those two things together develop, you know, drive towards this politics of resignation, where we become resigned to the reality that we have this broken and corrupt government and there's nothing much anybody could do about it. 
Right. So I'm interested in talking uh, about some of the solutions that you propose to this unrepresentation, um, some of the solutions that you propose in your podcast another way. Whether we're talking about the Article 5 convention approach or the election strategy that you outline in Season 1, I noticed that all of your proposals require bipartisan cooperation on some level. You've said that we're not going to be able to ram through government reform on a partisan basis at this point in history. Um, but it seems to me, and maybe you can tell me where I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that there is a way in which a partisan solution could happen, um, and it may be a bit of a long shot, but I have to wonder if the odds of success might be better than the odds of bipartisan cooperation. Um, suppose the Democrats keep the House and take the Senate and send a reform-minded president to the White House, then it seems to me they could theoretically end the filibuster, enact a reform package, and if absolutely necessary, add seats to the Supreme Court. And while the Republicans would cry foul, it seems to me that these reforms could be branded as good small-D Democratic ends in themselves and as a means of rebalancing scales that have, until now, been tipped in corruption's favors. So I'm curious to know, why am I wrong here? Well, I think that the, the single word to frame that response is Obamacare. You know, I think that when we have these fundamental changes that are partisan, they fuel their own self-destruction. And the destruction comes from building a political movement that begins to identify this as some illegitimate type of intervention that needs to be corrected. Now, you know, the Obamacare one is really uh, illustrative because, you know, Obamacare was basically benefiting most of the people who were most active in opposing it. And then, you know, obviously when finally people began to realize that they were opposing their own best interests. The Republicans were able to switch sides and say that they actually were going to give them better Obamacare than Obamacare was. But the point is, in the world of polarized media, one side of the media is going to just set this up and frame it in exactly the ways that Mitch McConnell framed it. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the nonpartisan or the cross-partisan or the above-partisan approach is easy or even possible. I'm not sure if it's possible, but what I am convinced of is we ought to practice the discipline of approaching this in a way that makes it clear that this is not about cementing left-wing objectives. This is about enabling a democracy to function and begin to recruit many of the Republicans from the state level who've been pushing reform measures around the country and get them to push this same kind of reform level uh, message at the federal government level. I think that's an opportunity that we just, you know, we should not assume we can, we can, uh, we can forego because I think that the Obamacare story is such a terrifying prediction of where we will be if, in fact, you're right. So it seems to me uh, that it's a question of, you know, sort of what's more likely here. So let's talk about that. So since you're calling for a bipartisan approach, I have a few questions about the likelihood of bipartisanship, and I appreciate that. Uh, you're acknowledging that it may still be an uphill battle or, or maybe impossible, but we still need to try given the stakes. Um, I've heard you say, Larry, that you're encouraged by polling that shows large majorities of voters are united in thinking the government serves powerful interests and not the people. Uh, and in wanting certain reforms of that corrupt system, uh, you also mentioned engaging voters in the various states because the Congress is broken, so you might as well in engage the state governments. So first off, I'm curious to know, insofar as the voters in the electorate generally are 
united, what makes you think that they're united in who they blame for the corruption? Because if different political factions blame different groups for our broken government, it seems that it might be difficult to galvanize the electorate as a whole. Well, um, you know, if you want to say blame as in who caused the problem, you're right. I think that you're going to see Republicans blaming Democrats and Democrats blaming Republicans. But the polling that I've seen is that, you know, both Democrats and Republicans identify the same character to the problem. So they will both identify in numbers approaching 90 percent, big money, lobbyists, corporations as having too much influence in the political system. And, you know, it might be that one side thinks the other side's responsible for that problem. But in the end, I think there's a common ground about what the problem is and what the kind of solutions should be to address it. And that's the you know, that's the common ground that I don't think we've seen people try to exploit. I mean, you know, if we had if we had 20 years of concerted efforts by politicians to speak on this common ground, as opposed to building campaigns designed to convince the left that the right is insane and convince the right that the left is crazy, um, then I would concede, look, we've tried, we've given this a try, let's move on. But what's so striking to me is, Right now, you see people approaching the question of reform, still approaching it in a way that makes it seem essentially partisan. And I, I just don't know why we would give up what seems to be the kind of uh, move that can aspire to the best in people, the idea of them rising above their partisan frame and becoming Americans again, why we wouldn't give that a try before we you know, just assume we've got to have a um, an all-out war and try to win by whatever means possible. Yeah, I do think it is worth a try. And I have to say, I I think about your Obamacare example kind of from the other angle, because Obamacare for me, as I recall, was in many ways quite bipartisan, at least in its intentions and its approach, right? Because it was in many ways, the Heritage Foundation's plan, and it was Romney Care, and there were Republicans in Congress that were already on the record calling for an individual mandate because it was health care by personal responsibility. And so it seemed to me that it was Barack Obama's attempt to be bipartisan and to reach across the aisle. And as you pointed out, right-wing media spun it as uh, they're going to pull the plug on grandma, and, and they kind of made it a, a partisan issue. And so s- since there is that right-wing media apparatus, and since all it takes is one party to make something a partisan issue, why wouldn't the party that benefits most from the status quo, namely the Republicans, I would argue, just frame any bipartisan movement for government reform as a kind of disguised power grab for Democrats uh, much like how Mitch McConnell frames H.R. 1 in Congress. Yeah, I, I don't deny that it's likely that's the move they'll try to make, because that's, of course, you're right uh, about Obamacare. Obamacare has very conservative small c origins in the way it tried to address that problem. But, you know, the significant fact that made Obamacare partisan from the perspective that I'm talking about it was that not a single Republican voted for it, just like not a single Republican voted for H.R. 1. And secondly, that one important difference is the actual motivation of those who opposed Obamacare was much more tangible and um, effectively deployed than I think the uh, opposition to real reform would be. I mean, because, you know, the real reason, the real fact that 
people who talk about single-payer health care, I think, are not fully reckoning. The real fact is that the kind of change that Obamacare was bringing about, especially when it was talking about a public option, and when people took seriously Obama's criticism of the block on negotiating drug prices from pharmaceutical companies, the reality of that change was that private corporations were going to lose an extraordinary amount of excess profit. And, you know, basically you can see the accountant sitting down and saying, you know, we're going to lose $100 million in the next uh, year or next two years. And um, so it's worth it to us to spend up to $100 million to oppose this change. And so that's what fleshed out, in a sense, the extraordinary amount of well-orchestrated opposition that began to define what is essentially Romney care as something antithetical to the Republican Party. I think if there's a chance for reform to move, it's because, though in some sense people ought to realize, people who benefit from the system ought to realize how much they're going to lose if the system changes, it's going to be harder to organize it. And so we ought to exploit this in a way that tries to aim to undermine the easy framing as right-left and try to achieve something that you know, has at least an opportunity to get you know, 10% or 15% of a Republican base to support it. That's why I support, for example, issue one, which has been out there working hard to try to build a cross-partisan base of support. I don't think it's fair to criticize like John Sarbanes and HR1 for failing to try to get Republican support, because that's what they've been doing for six years for that bill. Right. Um, but I do think that the ultimate objective of making sure that you've got Republicans on this side, uh, as well as Democrats, is ultimately the only way we make it so that it doesn't fuel the kind of partisan spin that ultimately attacked Obamacare. So Larry, I have another question here about bipartisanship. If bipartisanship around popular issues is possible at the state level or grassroots level, as your podcast suggests it is, why hasn't Wolfpack made more progress? Well, I think part of the problem, the challenge that Wolfpack is facing is, you know, a classic problem for those of us on the left. Um, you know, the wagons are circled and we're shooting each other. Um, I think that the common cause opposition to an Article 5 convention, uh, you know, plus Democracy 21, Fred Wertheimer, uh, and uh, Common Cause, um, destabilizes the opportunity for people on the left to rally to this as a mode of amending the Constitution in the way that people on the right are not destabilized. You know, the Birchers and Phyllis Schlafly um, opposed an Article 5 convention, but I think the conservatives have gotten over that opposition. And... Um, it's become more of a party line that it's at least something that ought to be considered for things like balanced budget or term limits or, as the Convention of the States people would have it, shrinking the size of the federal government. But on the left, we're divided. Uh, now, my own view is that we're divided based on ignorance. I, I, don't, I, I really cannot believe the, the kind of arguments that are being deployed, um, especially given that there's no alternative for amending the Constitution right now. You know, it was one thing... You know, I remember sitting down with Bob Reich before the election and having a conversation with him about Article 5. You know, and I love Reich. I think he's brilliant. And I think he's been an incredible inspiration to the movement on the left. And his basic reaction was, like, why should we even risk it? Because we're just going to get, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to uh, uh, nominate uh, three or four justices if we're lucky. And uh, we'll get what we want through the Supreme Court. Now, you know, that I, I, I didn't support that strategy when he uttered it because I'm so opposed 
to fighting social causes in the Supreme Court. I think that's one of the left's biggest mistakes in the past hundred years. But even if you believe that, you can't believe that anymore. So we're not going to have the Supreme Court saving us. We're not going to have a Congress proposing by two thirds any amendment in any area that we care about that would save us. So this is the only alternative. And when it gets blown up on the basis of you know, such completely faulty reasoning about historical precedents, it's enough to drive one crazy. Uh, you know, so I think that's why you're not seeing the level of uh, success that, um, that I think is actually out there uh, for this kind of reform. Um, um, but on the other hand, I've been impressed. They don't have a ton of money. They don't have like ALEC money behind them. Uh, mm-hmm. They've made enormous progress given the relatively small amount of resources that they've had relative to the other side of this. So you've taught me something here. I, I sort of just assumed that the main opposition to Wolfpack was on the right, but uh, but not, you're mentioning to me that it's uh, largely left skepticism of an Article 5 convention, and I definitely agree with you about your points about an Article 5 convention, and I would point any of our listeners to Season 2 of Another Way, and I would also point them to your excellent discussion with Andrew Torres on opening arguments, uh, where I think you lay out the case very well that any risk of a so-called runaway convention is dwarfed by the risk of not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, well put, well put, thank you. Um, we talked, we touched on uh, Obamacare earlier, and I have a uh, another question um, connected to that. I, I liked how in season one of Another Way, you mentioned that the old way of doing politics won't fix our broken system today. Uh, you pointed to Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign to change Washington, noting that he ended up governing so as to maintain the status quo. So my question is, what could keep reform-minded individual politicians from similarly getting co-opted by the old way of doing politics once they rise to power within that system? Well, that, that's exactly the uh, strategic problem we have to solve much more effectively than we have in the past. You know, the first thing to note about Obama is, though he was a great talker for reform, when he was running against Hillary Clinton in the primary. Once he was no longer running against Hillary Clinton, all of his reform talk disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, raising the question whether this was not, this reform commitment was actually nothing more than just recognizing that Clinton's weakest front was her affection for lobbyists. I mean, I remember during that campaign, you know, she uh, went before a convention. I can't actually now remember which one it was, but I remember watching it and and basically saying, you know, lobbyists are people too. There's no reason why we should <laughs> hate lobbyists. And and so you know that what what that revealed is that this was a this was a really important point of vulnerability if you were attacking her in a primary, and that might explain why Obama was so keen to attack her. But after the primary, it disappeared, and so when he was elected president. Though there were people like me who were deeply hopeful that he had this deep commitment to reform that he would now be executing on, I think the reality is he had a lot of other things he would be doing that were much more important to him than, than this. And then, you know, of course, he made Rahm Emanuel his chief of staff. And the idea of Rahm Emanuel leading a charge for reform is just crazy. Like, I mean, Rahm Emanuel was such a success uh, in the party as it was, and, you know, his famous utterance over and over again that the most top three important things for any candidate are money, money, and money, made it clear that, you know, he was not going to be the champion for reform. So what do we have to do that's different here? Well, number one, right now, 
We need to identify the candidates who are making it seem clear that they actually honestly believe that reform is fundamental, that we're not going to get anything if we don't fix democracy first. And secondly, that they express it in that way. And I think that's the great opportunity that HR1 gives us. That HR1 is not just a great package of reforms. Like we can quibble about whether we should be vouchers instead of matching programs. We can you know, argue about what the right basis for the Voting Rights Restoration Act should be. I mean, all, all those are fair game for an argument. But it is the most ambitious reform package presented and passed by Congress in 50 years. So that's the first point of acknowledgement. But the second really critical thing about that was that it was one, that it was H.R. 1, that it was a signal from Nancy Pelosi that she believed reform was uh, had to take precedence if we were going to be able to achieve any of the other things that, that, uh, that one would want to achieve. And we should take that framing that she has given us, H.R. 1, and start talking about POTUS 1. We should start talking about what is the initial package of fundamental reform that a candidate will press and, you know, get them to fill that package out uh, and then begin to compare them. So, you know, if you look at Buttigieg, uh, his, you know, when he was on uh, Trevor Noah and Trevor Noah said, like, what are you going to do first day in office? And he said, day one, I think we have to take up a democracy reform. Now, you know, he started to lay out the elements. He said, you know, like in H.R. 1, uh, and then he shifted off to talking about the Electoral College, which is kind of bizarre. But but at least he had this framing that we need to do this thing first. You know, Kirsten Gillibrand just today released um, a really ambitious voucher program to fund uh, congressional elections, basically six times what Andrew Yang had announced uh, a couple months ago. But she, too, believes that you've got to fix this problem first before you're going to have the chance to deal with any of these other issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that recognition has got to be nailed down and made as prominent as possible so that when they get to Washington, the measure of their success is whether they deliver on this promise. And I think it's possible to imagine that actually being true, especially with some of these candidates that are coming through. And if that were true, then, you know, for the first time in the dozen years I've been in this fight, I think that there's a reasonable chance we could actually get this done. All right. Well, Larry, uh, the solutions you've advanced all address how to fix our government from within the confines of our government's political and legal system. But you also said earlier in this conversation, there is a chance that structural reform within those confines could be impossible. So I'm curious to know, in your opinion, if it hypothetically were to be the case that the system became so broken that necessary political change could only happen from outside of it, how might we come to know that? Well, I think we'll come to know it too late because we will, as Hemingway writes in The Sun Also Rises, you know, the question is, how did we go bankrupt? And the answer is slowly at first and then all at once. Um, I think that's the dynamic of failure of governments. You know, things are not going well. That's kind of where we are right now. You can see that there's nothing really that could be done. You can't imagine anything substantial coming through Congress, regardless of who wins the president, if we don't have fundamental structural reform. Um, and then there'll be a certain point at which this becomes a catastrophic failure. And at that point, you know, we, we've never, though we've had, you know, republics die throughout history, I don't think we've ever had a republic of this magnitude with this amount of killing force behind it collapse. Right. Um, and, and, and I don't know, I actually don't know what happens at that point. You know, the 
kind of romantic Jeffersonian ideas of unalienable right to alter or abolish a government, um, this permanent right of revolution, all sounds fine when the soldiers are carrying muskets, but when they've got you know, the equipment of the modern American military, I'm not sure what the dynamic looks like. So I try to hide my imagination from, from that scenario because I think that the upside looks so small and the downside looks so great and keep focused on you know, trying to make this existing system come around because I think it's actually possible. Yeah, you make a good point. Uh, ancient Rome was not nuclear, so let's, uh, let's desperately try and fix this system. So, uh, Larry, while we're talking about dysfunction and partisanship in government, I'd like to ask about the Supreme Court. Now, I was always taught that the court derives its legitimacy from its willingness to put an impartial commitment to the law above its partisan whims, especially since judicial review is not explicit in the Constitution, but rather a product of Marbury versus Madison. So my question is, how do we go about assessing the extent to which the Supreme Court has become partisan enough so as to erode the foundation upon which its authority and power rests? Yeah, this is a really hard question because I, I think a big part of it is not actually the Supreme Court. Um, you know, it's still the case that the vast majority of cases the Supreme Court decides, it decides unanimously. And the question is how the other cases plug into our media culture. And I think that we've developed pretty automatic reflexes to read these decisions of the court in our own partisan spin. And of course, it's not hard to do that. And, and I'm not saying there isn't any there there, that I'm not saying that justices are not at times improperly guided. But I do think that there's a way in which the environment amplifies that. And so the danger here is not only the danger of the court, it's the danger of the court doing its job, you know, as well as it can, given the nature of politics and the nature of personality. But then their work being rendered in a way that makes it seem so much worse than it actually is. Now, you know, I, I've been surprised. We'll see um, what happens in the next three years. I think, you know, after these two changes on the court, there's going to be a real opportunity for evaluating whether there's any continued desire to maintain a frame of something other than just tools of the president. Right. But, uh, but I would be surprised if they move that quickly or that clearly in that direction. And I think that Chief Justice Roberts at least has, ha has demonstrated a genuine concern that the court not frame or behave in a way that can be framed as, uh, as partisan. So I think he will continue to play a central role in that uh, development. Yeah, and then, and then we have to uh, you know, hold out hope for Justice Ginsburg. If, if Roberts is the swing justice, then uh, then that's what we're facing. Yeah, well, we only have to get to February, right? And if we get to February, then even if she steps down, then you can't appoint a new justice in the final year of a presidency, right? Oh, yeah. Funny, funny how <laughs> rules change. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, one thing that, that does give me hope is the cohort effects of generation on political beliefs where millennials and Generation Z are more progressive than the older generations. What would you say to the argument that as older, more reactionary voters die off, the political dysfunction that those voters contribute to will eventually solve itself? I am actually incredibly hopeful because of that dynamic precisely. You know, in the, in the last uh, sort of book I published in the fall called America Compromise, I told a story of 
when I was a kid and I traveled in the Soviet Union and uh, I met a person who just happened to speak English. Of course, they seem to follow me around all the time. And, and this, this guy was a professor at uh, Moscow State. And, and he said to me, you know, we actually have a better free speech system in the Soviet Union than you do in America. And I said, what could you possibly mean by that? And he said, well, in America, you wake up and you read the New York Times or you read the Wall Street Journal and you think you know the truth. But here in the Soviet Union, we know everybody is lying to us. So we have to read seven or eight newspapers before we can triangulate on the truth. And he said that dynamic actually teaches you to be a more critical thinker than the dynamic in the United States. And, and I thought that was hilarious and quite insightful when he said it then. But I more and more look at America today, and I think we see the same dynamic. But the dynamic is now not Soviet versus American. The dynamic is people over 50 and people under 30. Because I think people over 50, especially like my parents' generation, like they get an email and it says Barack Obama's a Muslim. And they're like, oh, my God, Barack Obama's a Muslim. And you're like, Dad, why do you think Barack Obama's a Muslim? <laughs> and he says, because I got this email and it says it. And I said, why would you believe it? And he said, why would they say something that's wrong? And so, you know, you have this mentality that is so deeply trusting of single sources that, of course, as the sources become unreliable, these people become vulnerable to their distortions. But, you know, people, my students, you know, it's really hard to pull anything over my students, and not just because they're smart. I mean, I think anybody over, under the age of 30 at least is more attuned to this kind of, well, let me check the reality frame around this type of claim. And that dynamic, I think, means that they will be less vulnerable to this kind of distortion than we are. And if they're less vulnerable, then that gives more of an opportunity or more hope to the idea that something that's true will actually uh, penetrate through. Well, thankfully, I uh, turned 30 in two months, so I've got, uh, I've got about two months of, to avoid those vulnerabilities. You've got some time left. <laughs> All right. Well, Larry, that takes us to the end of our questions. So uh, we appreciate you being here with us. Uh, the podcast is another way. The professor is Lawrence Lessig, and uh, we appreciate your optimism. And we definitely agree that uh, we need to try everything we can to fix this structural problem in our government because the stakes are just so high. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. You can help expand Pineal Express's reach by giving Pineal Express a rating and review on iTunes, whether or not you use iTunes to listen to the show. You can also help new listeners find us by subscribing to us on YouTube. Just search there for Pineal Express and look for our logo. And if you're not already a patron, visit us at patreon.com slash pinealexpress and consider becoming one to support the show and get patron rewards. We'd like to thank Jamie Willard for providing background music, Jim Glasgow of Strange Bang Song Factory for our theme music, and Adam Schultz for the Pineal Express logo.